Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And yeah, yeah, we are. Yes, in fact, we are live. I did just press record. All right. Nice start. This is the second part of the collaboration episode with Sebastian Major from Our Fake History. This episode here, if you haven't listened to the first part, that's grand. If you just want to come here and listen to stuff about the last siege of Vienna, then you're in good company because myself and Sebastian Major talk all around that topic for the next 40 minutes or so. It's a really fun conversation, nice and casual, but still nice and informative, which I feel really captures the essence of Sebastian Major's work. I didn't really plug him very much at the start of the last episode, but I feel like if you listen to this and you're not really sold, then there's nothing that will sell him to you. Sebastian Major's podcast is fantastic. If you are not listening to it, you are not doing listening right. You need our fake history in your life right now. For the history as much as the wonderful sound effects from Dirty Church, if nothing else. He knows what I'm talking about. Some of you guys out there who are nerds for our fake history, you know what I'm talking about. You should also find him on Twitter and like him on Facebook for those wonderful graphics that he has released for each new episode. Also, we didn't mention it in here because he hadn't done it at that point, but he's recently released a two-part series on Robin Hood. So if you want to hear the myths being busted about Robin Hood, that famous Lancastrian rebel, was he a Lancastrian rebel? Go and check him out. Did I just say Lancastrian wrong? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Go and check out our fake history. Alrighty, guys, it's been fun, but this is the second part of the collaboration with our fake history. The next voices you hear will be mine and Sebastian Majors. Thanks and enjoy. How about this? I mean, we we've we've <laughs> talked a, we've talked a good bit about well about kind of all sorts of stuff, and I love that because I love this kind of conversational style, and I think it's great to have it in. But I want to talk a bit about something that you did relatively recently, and one of the main reasons I asked you to come on, and it's very topical for us at the moment because even though we're recording this in uh, July to break the fourth wall, which I do all the time, it'll be released around the time when the siege of Vienna is coming to a a kind of a great culmination. So let's talk about that for a while, since you did a three-parter series on it yourself, which people can find at, I believe it's rfakehistory.com. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Cool. Okay, so visit rfakehistory.com, and <laughs> I'll put the uh, I'll put the episode links in the show notes for this uh, collaboration, so you guys can track it down if you want some more kind of context to the myths that surround 
the last Siege of Vienna, but for now I'd kind of like to maybe ask your perspective on a, on a few kind of parts about it. Above all, I think I'd like to know what, what drew you to the last Siege of Vienna in the first place? Oh, it is one of the <laughs> best stories from, I think, any point in European history. It is yeah. just, it is just such a, I just a, it's just such an amazing thing. And I, I say amazing in that I am amazed by it. Not that yeah. it was particularly good or bad, but just it was just, <laughs> it's just, it's just bananas. Everything about the story is just so, it's just so wild. Um, I, re- I remember when I first learned about it, and this was when I was taking a, a European history course um, in university, and I was just blown away by the scope of the event. I'm also kind of fascinated by that particular era in military history. Mm. Um, I like that weird time when gunpowder weapons are sort of in the mix, but they're not everything. Yeah. And so like there's, you know, there's both sides are using guys with these early grenades. So grenadiers Mm. are a big part of everything. There's cannon. There are, uh, you know, both the Turks and the Austrians are using, uh, are using muskets, but both sides, the muskets aren't great. So everyone's still got swords and spears and battle axes. And so, I mean, not to sort of, you know, uh, dwell on the violence of it all, but there's just something about that era of, of military history. That's just so fascinating. That Mm. weird spot where the, the militaries haven't become entirely gunpowder based yet. And, uh, and they're sort of still in this sort of spot between what modern warfare is going to become and what, medieval warfare was and the sort of culminating moment when the uh when the winged hussars arrived oh yeah uh, you know it's like what a dramatic <laughs> moment right i know uh, i know and 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 that you know it, it 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 often gets mythologized as sort of the last great charge of european chivalry and you know me being me i'm always going to be sort of cautious when it comes to those types of grand pronouncements. Sure. But it kind of is. <laughs> yeah. So it's, that's kind of cool. It's kind of hard not to get into that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting you mentioned there the kind of the melting pot of different kind of military styles and weapons. And from delving into this myself, it's very, I found it very interesting how depending on where you were geographically in Europe, you actually fought very differently. For example, yes. I'll be I'll be doing a, I'm doing a twelve part series for patrons on like Jan Sobieski and yeah. his life experience before he even got to the siege of Vienna was fighting against the Tartars and fighting against the Ottomans and everything else. And a lot yeah. of the reason why the the Polish winged Tsars seemed so like striking and incredibly like uh like shocking in a way to to the allies and they were very glad that they were on their side but the reason why that they they looked as they did and fought as they did was because fighting against the Crimean Tartars and the the Ottoman auxiliaries who very much still used horse archers yeah it, it's it's mad to think that the same types of of kind of cavalry infantry whatever you like even the same kind of weapon the same ideas were being used in the late 1600s just as they had been used by the Mongols. Like, it's it's amazing to think that. Yeah. And especially because the Tartars saw themselves as the kind of one of many different successor states of the Mongols. So it's it's incredible to see just how the fact that, like, I don't know, the, the Tartars using horse archers 
leads the kind of the poles to fight in a certain way and how what the other like what their contemporaries thought of that and by and large all impressions of the winged hussars were kind of like these things are not from this world like they're gliding yeah. along the ground they're not even like they're they're angels do you know that kind yeah, of thing it's yeah. just it's it's amazing to see how that came about and i think <laughs> it's 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 a it's an unintentional plug but it's also a kind of a deliberate plug for that series on on Jan Sobiesu because it really it yeah. gives you a great background into kind of how that world came to be in that yeah. like how east and west appeared so different purely because of the enemies each side had to face. Yes, yes, no, I uh, very much so, and then and as I'm sure you 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 you've discovered right, like those winged stars are still these sort of armored knights in this big plate yeah. armor because. You know, and again, that's something that most of the Western armies had sort of abandoned. Mm. But but you're you're quite right. When you're still fighting someone that's using arrows, yeah. plate armor is still an effective defense. Mm. And uh, and when you were when once gunpowder sort of comes into the into the mix, your plate armor isn't really helping you anymore. But the winged hussars were yeah, still had this enemy where the plate armor was still a useful thing. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. So it made them look even more dazzling. You know, when they mm. when they arrived. Mm, it's incredible really and i mean that that whole scene of the siege of vienna i mean how, before I take it back a bit maybe how yeah, sure. how did you feel or what what did you really think or expect to see from the siege of vienna i mean did you know a lot about it before you looked into it um i did know i did know a bit about it and also that the one thing that i wanted to sort of get into and the thing that's the hook for my show is uh the historical myths that are sort of associated with the siege sure and when it comes to the siege there it's it's an interesting event because there are these big overarching myths and then there are these weird little stories. Mm. Um, and so that was sort of my sort of approach to it. Like let's take on some sort of the, the, the bigger legends or the sort of bigger sort of perspectives, almost sort of like, you know, here's a mythological perspective on this event that has sort of grown up. So I wanted to sort of uh, engage with that. And then I also wanted to pepper it with these weird little stories that also sort of come out of an event like that. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the big thing about the Siege of Vienna, and it is a really important event. I didn't want to downplay that it wasn't important. And I do actually believe that it was a turning point in European history, and it often gets presented that way. Mm-hmm. However, there is this belief that the Siege of Vienna was the ultimate showdown between East and West, and that had the Turks been able to take Vienna, it essentially would have spelt the end of quote-unquote Western civilization. Sure. And so that's, that's, like the big, that's like the big myth, I'll say. Mm. Uh, and when Jan Sobieski and the, the Polish and, the, and the, the, his German allies arrive to save the city, it gets presented as uh, him saving Western civilization <laughs> or, or saving Christianity, the entire religion of Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so that understanding of the event, and I mean, I can't believe we're back to this again, but that, that understanding of the event has been picked up by nationalists and by like some very um, unsavory white supremacist groups. Mm. Um, I can't believe we're talking so much about this, but here we are. <laughs> um, 
Something you're you want to tell us. Uh... Yeah, no, no, you're going to think I'm obsessed with this stuff. I'm really not, but here we are. Yeah, actually, so, interestingly, sorry, sorry, go ahead, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, no, I, what, are you, what, are, what are you thinking? Oh, I was just going to say, because you even had to, I mean, I thought that she treaded a very good balance between emphasizing that it was an important historical event, but also saying, listen, guys, there's some caveats we need to look through. But one yeah. of them that was interesting and actually a very convenient way for me to remember the actual date of the siege being relieved, you you have to specify the fact that it's September the 12th, not September 11th, because some yes. people in their, in their rhetoric emphasize that, look, this was... Uh, and like they somehow connected to nine eleven, I just thought that was bizarre in the extreme. Yeah. I, I, mean, yeah. I, was, I was running while I was listening to that. This is a funny story. I was running <laughs> while I was listening to that, right, with my yeah. earphones in as I normally do. And as I came, <laughs> as I came around the corner, I exclaimed very loudly, "What a load of like <laughs> you know!" And just yeah. as I did that, there was this woman bringing her two children, and she gave me the filthy. <laughs> Yes, look, but I, I just jogged on, but it was just, yeah. I thought it was so funny how like, oh, honestly, I mean, I, it's just, it's beyond me how people will, not even knowing the actual history, they'll look and try and find these things and, and use them for their own gain. It makes me yeah. sad and exasperated at the same time. Yeah, and, and so, I, I mean, yeah, I felt the same way. I felt the same way. And so the other line that you need to walk when sort of telling that story is I, I looked a lot at the mythology and the propaganda that had been out there about the Turks. Yeah. Um, and so now, again, that's a tricky line to walk because I didn't want people to come away with me sort of somehow being an apologist for the Ottoman Empire mm. uh, because the Ottoman Empire was an empire, yeah. right? Yeah. And empires empire's going to be empiring. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, the process of building an empire is bloody, mm. and uh, it doesn't matter who is doing the building of that, be it the Ottomans, be it the Romans, be it the British, be it whoever, right? Empire building is is filled with violence and uh, suppression. That's just part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that that's a good thing. In fact, I would say that's a bad thing. Um, and so the Ottoman, the history of the Ottoman Empire is filled with violence and suppression of local populations Mm. but with that said with that said and so again they are they they're that is all very true with that said in europe the propaganda around the turks made them into these inhuman monsters Mm. who were just like obsessed with cruelty who were obsessed with violence who went out of their way to do especially nasty things there were all sorts of stories about the sultans which weren't true that were you know made them out to be you know particularly sex obsessed uh (laughs) particularly sort of um you know uh masochistic i guess yeah for uh sadistic uh i guess is actually the right word so that that myth that legend is sort of you know baked into the story that like and I, I used a lot of uh, 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 comparisons to Lord of the Rings, right? Mm. Uh, so a lot of times the story gets told where Vienna is like Minas Tirith. It is the the great city of Gondor. It is they are the good guys, yeah. And and the Turks are the orcs. Mm. They are these monsters at the gate 
who, if they were to win, they will surely destroy all that is good and pure in the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, um, and that's just not true. That's just not true. Mm. Uh, you know, again, the Turks are certainly guilty of atrocities, but so were every one of their European foes. Yeah. Um, so we should keep that in mind. Absolutely. And, uh, and secondly, at the time, other Europeans didn't really see the siege of Vienna as this great civilizational uh, clash. That Louis XIV is asked to come to the aid of Vienna, and he's like, no way. I, I, the, ha the, the Habsburgs are my enemies. I'd actually love it if their capital got taken by the Turks. Mm. I'll eat up some more territory over here in the Alsace-Lorraine region, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, even even the other German states in the Holy Roman Empire, of whom Leopold I, you know, the Habsburg, the Habsburg ruler, is nominally their emperor. Mm. Even they don't come to help them. The, the ones <laughs> that do, the ones that do are ones that were specifically uh, coerced by the Pope, mm. and maybe not coerced, but paid off and convinced. I guess is better, better maybe the better word. The, the Pope had to go around, and even Jan Sobieski, yeah, who is, you know... On, he was on a pension, like, from the Pope. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, he was, you know, and, and he gets accolades as he should, but, uh, but I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, he came in only after he worked out a deal where, like, he got paid, mm. right? And so all of these, all of the actors in this, in this drama are all really out for themselves. Every one of them. Uh, and even though, you know, once once the Holy League is assembled, they are on this very self-consciously Christian mis mission. Their, their, their branding is deeply Christian. Uh, and they do kind of, they, they, they present themselves that way. It wasn't like the, all of Christian Europe was somehow rooting for Vienna. And and that's often how the story gets portrayed. Yeah. That it was just like it was Muslims versus Christians. Every Christian threw their weight behind Vienna. And uh, that is a uh, – in my own research, I found that to be not true. Mm -hmm. I think because uh, I know – we're both kind of reading from the same hymn sheet, so to speak. But I think yeah. a, very, a very useful hymn sheet was certainly Andrew Wheatcroft's book on oh, Habsburgs. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Enemy at the Gate, it was called. And it was yeah. a very, very good, very detailed, very readable and all that kind of thing. But I found it very interesting how if you just looked at 1683, you, you could very easily interpret it in a number of different ways. But it's only when you actually look in context and even the the years before, how much of a terrible job Leopold had done. First of all, he basically provoked a religious revolt in Hungary because he was so right. insistent on expelling all the Protestants there that much of the... He, he basically provoked a, a Hungarian revolt where this Hungarian nobleman called Imre Tokoli, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but... Oh, that's pretty he, good, man. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Imre Tokoli basically decided that he was going to take it upon himself to kind of rouse his... Protestant Hungarian brethren against the Habsburgs and right there was just so much ignorance in the Habsburg court in Vienna they they believed up until the very end that through appeasement in in the east 
that they could kind of have it their way. And because they were so focused on Louis XIV, and that's a big part of what we look into is the diplomacy between the, the few sides and yeah. how how each side had a, had a wrong picture, really, of the other. Louis had it yeah. wrong, like Leopold had it wrong, and, of course, Mehmed IV had it Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com wrong and like it was just yeah. so kind of it was just it's interesting now i mean almost with rose tinted glasses to be able to look back and, and see them all make these mistakes but it's just it i think suppose this speaks to what we were talking about before where the story is so interesting and i love yeah. how we can take a story that's already been finished and you can kind of like the conclusions are, are, are like there for you to find them you could say but for all intents and purposes the dust is already settled so we can look back and have our own kind of conclusions and I think that's why history is so great. The Siege of Vienna as an event, save it what you will, but there's just so much there to be interested oh, yeah. by. There's oh, just so yeah. much to it. So I, I was really, I was, I almost took it as a sign that I just had to have you on when I saw <laughs> that you were covering the Siege of Vienna because it's been on my radar ever since I started into this era, I think in uh, late 2013, I believe it was. I started with the early 1500s and I didn't yeah. cover them in super amounts of detail, but I knew that the 30 years war and then Louis the 14th was going to be very much in the way yeah. I was really looking forward to the siege of Vienna. So I'm really looking forward to how, uh, how people take it on and how they digest it because there's, there's so much, uh, so much to it that I think people will enjoy. If they enjoyed your series, I feel like they really will. So, yeah, well, one of the things I found, and I, I don't know, you know, how well this story is known in, in Ireland or in or in the UK, but uh, in North America, the Siege of Vienna is like virtually unknown. Mm. Uh, like only only the hardcore history nerds out there uh, know about the Siege of Vienna. Mm. Um, now I, I know that in Europe, it's uh, it's that's a very different situation. I, I I get the feeling that if you grew up in Germany, uh, you grew up learning about it in school. 
I definitely not in North America. And I, I, I don't know, it, was it on the radar of, of, uh, of you in Ireland? Not at all. I mean, I have to say, like, this is one of the reasons why I think history podcasts are so important because there was, I mean, in secondary school, your like high school, we we did, as I said, Irish history from like the middle of the 19th century onwards. We did the First and Second World Wars. In university for history, we there wasn't even a course on napoleon like that's oh how yeah so there was no now there was this one very very good history lecture who i had who did a a, a course on old westphalian diplomacy and politics and that's really what got me reinvigorated with history even while i was doing the podcast that was what really yeah. kind of got me back into it and he he's the man who's responsible for the whole croissant uh, fiasco but there you go you can't <laughs> have it can't have it every way but yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah there before then even then i mean i kind of accepted what he told me i mean i knew that something happened in 1683 i knew that the siege of vienna was an important event i think but even looking yeah. back i mean i couldn't i could not say the same for for other people that's not because i knew a whole lot it was just purely because I had been told about it at some point. I may have been fortunate enough to watch a documentary when the History Channel was still a History Channel or something yeah, to that effect. Yeah. And yeah, it's just. But even like, I often do what I what I call uh, the dad test. If I ask my dad about it and he doesn't know anything about it, then it's highly likely I didn't know anything about it myself until <laughs> relatively recently. And he he knew nothing about it. He hadn't even heard of the siege of Vienna, and he didn't know about Jan Sobieski. He didn't even know yeah. about the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth or anything like right. that. So all of this, that like a lot of what I'm planning in the future for when diplomacy fails, from the siege of Vienna to the biography of Jan Sobieski to like the history, I'm doing a Polish history miniseries next yeah. year as well. So that's going to be really good, really enlightening, I think, for me as well, because there's lots yeah. I don't know, but all this obscure history that isn't really talked about. And I don't think you yeah. can include Vienna in that, but somehow it managed to slip under my radar. Yeah, I mean, again, for people in that part of the world, it is like just the, the it is just the hugest thing. It's just, I mean, I, I think what you'll find is that not only will you hear from lots of uh, Polish, uh, and uh, I, I heard from I heard from Austrian people, I heard from Germans, but lots of people from the Baltic states. Mm. Uh, I heard I heard from Lithuanians, from Latvians, Estonians, uh, who kind of saw themselves as sort of a big part of that story. And we're also really really adamant that it's like, hey, this isn't just Poland. This is Pol Poland Lithuania. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, get that right. Oh, I had a listener email me and tell me very politely. Now I have to add who she yeah. was Lithuanian, but she she told me that referring to it as Poland is actually incorrect. You should be calling it when you're talking about Poland. You say the crown, and when you're talking about the whole thing as itself, you call it the Commonwealth. When you're talking uh, about Lithuania, you call it the the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, if you like. But like right. that, like that, those are the kind of things like we we gloss over that, and when when it's yeah. referred to in shorthand, it's like. Jan Sobieski, the King of Poland, and, and that's that. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah. you go. That's another example. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, maybe not even necessarily Poland. I mean, well, yeah, if, if you like, but uh, but also with with Vienna itself, I mean, in my mind, the, the siege of Vienna, I think this, this also talks to how great a story it is, how literally down to the wire the relief was. I mean, reading yeah. reading yeah. Lovecraft's book, how literally the, the, the Ottomans had burst through the last portions of the walls, uh, yeah. 
Count Starenberg, the garrison commander there, he was literally, he knew that like the next step was, okay, we're abandoning the walls, we're going to fight to the end in the, in the city yeah. streets kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I found <laughs> the, the person of Starenberg very interesting because he was so resolute in his defense and he knew that it was going to be the end. He had chains ready to kind of block yeah. the block the movement of artillery and stuff, but how they literally arrived. I just, I would have lo- loved to have seen the relief just you know uh, what yeah. if you ever if you ever feel relief yeah. you can Time see machine. someone's yeah but you can see someone's shoulders like relaxing i just imagine <laughs> this whole like this like widespread sigh of relief just going oh. all over the what and, was left and, and starenberg was uh suffering from like the bloody flux yes. for like yeah. the entire siege too yeah. right so he was he was ill yeah. for for most of that but actually, that is one thing that it, it also jumps out at you. is and, and again, this is why it's so easy to turn the Siege of Vienna into such a heroic story. Because mm. I think there are moments, and I don't, I don't think I hammered this home enough in the series that I did, but I think there actually are really cool moments of individual heroism yeah. uh, during the Siege of Vienna. And uh, Starenberg is one of like, the defenders of Vienna overperform. And I like, and the Turks, the thing is what I kind of love about it is that nobody sucks. Like nobody is like outright, (laughs) just like you blew it. Like the, the the Turks could have been better led. And Mm. there's a lot of discussion about, you know, about, you know, whether or not uh, our sort of our, our lead, our our Kara Mustafa, our lead Pasha, you know, what he could have done better, Mm. but He's not a disaster. He's just like he just sort of kind of underperforms, whereas yeah. the whereas the defenders vastly overperform. Mm. And so Starenberg being one of them, George Rimpler, the guy that uh, designs all of the defenses and basically gets Vienna's defenses up to snuff right before the Turks show up. Like they're literally still hammering the defenses into place. Yeah. When the Turks arrive. Right? It's an incredible scene, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I know, exactly. And so I think Rimpler is one of the great, often unsung heroes of the siege. And apparently, and I didn't I didn't get to say this in the my uh uh show either, but apparently when the uh the Lobel or is it the Berg Bastion? Oh man, yeah, the Berg and the Berg and the Lobel Bastion. The Berg and the Lobel Bastion. So God, I should remember this. People are like, didn't you do a podcast on this? Uh, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, when the one of the bastions gets exploded right near the end, like this is like in days before the, uh, the Polish arrive, the Polish-Lithuanians arrive, um, <laughs> he, uh, uh, apparently George Rimpler dies in that blast. Oh. That's what we're talking Or so goes the legend, right? Again, I couldn't find any really good... Uh, and again, finding stuff on George Rimpler at all was like a bit of a... Uh, it was tricky to, to track stuff down about yeah, him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, the story goes that, you know, he created these defenses. He was on the walls every day mm. sort of helping direct the, the defense beside Starenberg. Uh, and then when, you know, one of the key parts of the wall is finally breached, it's in that explosion that George Rimpler dies. Wow. Um, I know. I mean, and again, those stories are the ones I'm always suspicious about because they're just too perfect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But yeah. yeah, but again, he's someone that overperforms, and then also a uh, Charles of Lorraine. Yeah, I, I I can't help but really like that guy, the mm. guy with the rotting wig. <laughs> I, he's like, he's he, you know, he's this 
the guy that a guy that should be based on his birth, just like the ultimate arrogant aristocrat, is this just like down and dirty soldier who again kind of overperforms. Like he, you know, he's sort of on the periphery the whole time with the relatively small Austrian field army, making raids, trying to get them opportunities. But it's sort of like the the George Washington thing, mm. where his great success was just keeping an army alive in the field. Yeah. And uh, that was sort of Washington's sort of success during the American Revolutionary War is that, you know, he rarely did he have these big, you know, blowout military victories, but he, he was known for orderly retreats. And, uh, and he, kept the, he kept the army alive in the field, which made them, just kept them as a going concern. And, uh, and you could potentially argue that if Lorraine had not been there, to rendezvous with the Holy League, then you may not have had the relief. And I think uh, another thing as well, we were saying about how it's important to 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 be wary when the story is too perfect. But I mean, how perfect yeah. is it? They arrive just in the nick of time when people are like, oh. "Right, guys, it's the last chance," you know, kind of thing. I know. I just, I was like reading, you know, I was like turning over each page and being like, oh, this is so juicy, kind of thing. And yeah. this is why people call me a nerd, you know. It's just kind of like. <laughs> You can like the the story doesn't even need any bells and whistles because there's just no, so much drama going on. And like when you have it at the the point when the Wing Tassars are committed to the battle, and like this is another thing, the the way that I heard the story was literally like Siege of Vienna was going on, and then the Poles arrived, just the Poles, and then the Poles, just the Poles, uh fought off the Turks by themselves, just the Poles. But in, in actual <laughs> in actual fact, it was like the, the Poles kind of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, they threw their winged hussars in not until about 6pm or like late in the afternoon. And by that point, it wasn't that they'd been slacking up to that point, but the army was split into three. The the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth were on the far... Was it the left or the right? No, it was the far right. Yeah, it was the far right flank. Right right flank, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and at the point where the kind of Saxon commander Waldeck and Charles of Lorraine had pushed forward in the in the left and the center at the point where kind of the two of them had sort of like pushed through the worst of the Turks defenses, which themselves had been kind of set up regularly, fairly erratically. I'd say by that point, the Turks were kind of like, Oh crap, there's the Poles. But another thing, and and it's interesting. We speak of myths because one of the sources I have for Jan Sobieski now, it's a very readable book, but I'd say there's a good few myths in there that uh, yep. that, that maybe wouldn't stand up very well. One of the myths, yeah. supposedly, is that when the commander of the Tartars, who was supposed to be on, supposed to hold the Turkish left wing, in other words, supposed to stand up to Jan Sobieski, what he could throw at him, when he saw which yeah. way the battle was going, he basically, and the Sultan was like, get in there, uh, I think Murad Jure was, was, was his name, he was the Khan of the Tartars, but he right. he ordered him. He ordered basically his vassal. He was supposed to be a vassal of the Ottoman Empire, and yeah. when he saw Jan Sobieski coming over the crest of the hill with his with his winged hussars and everything else, having fought him or having fought uh, parts of his army in the past, he straight up said to the Sultan. He said, "Probably Ibrahim Pasha was right when he advised you not to attack Vienna." You have done a foolish thing, Kara Mustafa, in coming here as half of Christian nations are united against us. I am distressed to participate in this battle when you sit in your luxurious <laughs> tent, drinking your coffee, while your men are slaughtered by the infidels. 
And now the the biographer goes on to say that uh, normally never would a would a can speak to his his master in this way, but the can uh, replied by saying his final words. And do not think to slay me, Kara Mustafa, when this cursed battle is over, for I shall not be here. And he promptly <laughs> went, he promptly went over to his 20,000 Tartars that had been assigned to that flank and said, we ride. And they replied against Sobieski. And he was like, of course not. The battle is already lost for Kara Mustafa. And he, he led, he led his men away and oh, essentially yeah. doomed Kara Mustafa right then and there. Now, I'm not saying that he definitely said that, but damn uh, very quotable isn't it i know it's so quotable <laughs> and so yeah oh god i love that stuff i love that stuff <laughs> there's also something about those old translations too that are just so uh, weirdly verbose you know what i mean yeah, uh, yeah but but that that particular <laughs> quote um I, and i'm gonna guess did that does that come from like the secret history of jan sobieski like one of those type uh, documents or no i see i don't know because the guy who it's by it's by a man called uh miltiades varvunas and i'm probably pronouncing that wrong but his book is called jan sobieski the king who saved europe and it's it, he's a greek yes. he's a greek scholar uh he's he claims to have uh, like polish ancestry but he's written a few things about jan sobieski before i i suspect he's probably come across a, a trope of loads of polish legends and kind of just used them kind of thing yeah i, I mean and that yeah, <laughs> I mean, because that that one just just really rings like it was a a Christian author writing that because that's the words they'd want to have coming out of his mouth. Like, yeah. look at us, all of Christian Christendom is is arrayed in front of us. Yeah. We must flee because we're cowards. You know, yeah, like exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but who knows? Maybe he did say it, right? I, I it's one of those <laughs> that you you got to be suspicious. But who knows, right? He mm. perhaps those were the words that came out of the con's mouth that day. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps indeed. I mean, there's a lot of perhapses surrounding the siege of Vienna, but I think one thing that I've learned from it is no matter the truths behind it or the myths behind it, at the end of the day, it's still one of the most incredible stories I think either of us have really ever come across. Yes. Yeah. You, I very disagree. All right, Mr. Sebastian Major, I want to say a huge thanks for joining us on this collaboration for When Diplomacy Fails. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Zach. It's been a uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and uh, um, you know, hopefully, we uh, our, our paths cross again when oh. we uh, with similar topics. That'd be very cool. Absolutely, absolutely. Before we get out of here, is there anything you'd like to plug in particular? Um. Well, the the new season of Our Fake History begins on September twelfth. 2017 um there's also a new extra episode out there on vlad the impaler um and it actually deals with a the same sort of geographic region that we've just sort of been discussing so mm. the, the ottoman turks are a big part of that story except it's the ottoman turks from about 200 years previously so it's the turks on the rise as opposed to the turks sort of at the uh at the apex and almost nadir of their, of their fortune. So, ah. uh, yeah, the Turks on the rise are a big part of the Dracula story. Cool. Um, so if people are interested in that, um, they can, uh, they can either join Patreon and get it through that, or they can go to ourfakehistory.com, uh, follow the link for, uh, extra episodes and they can check it out there. Sweet. Thanks. Huge. Thanks again for joining us. And I'll be talking to you soon. I'm sure. I hope so. All right, man. Take it easy. 
Okay, so you must be all ready for the last Siege of Vienna now, guys. That was myself and Sebastian Major talking around that topic like nobody else can. It was great. I really had a really good time. And a big thanks again to Sebastian Major for joining us and shedding some more lights on that event in history. It's really special. And yes, if you didn't know, we are a bit obsessed with the last Siege of Vienna at the moment. Between this collaboration episode talking about it and the Anne Sobieski biography, looking at it from a different angle, and our Long War series looking at it until, well, basically the end of 2017, you'll be very much full of The Last Siege of Vienna, so make sure to check all those different areas out if you are interested. If you just can't get enough of Jan Sobieski, you can't get enough of The Last Siege of Vienna or that era in which it all occurred. Alrighty guys, that's going to be me. This is the collaboration episode for your month and I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to let me and Sebastian Major know what you thought. Thank you very much for joining us. This has been When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.